And I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I understand that I'm uh, getting up here to preach just a little bit later than we would, would normally do that, but we're extending our service just a few minutes. Don't worry, it's just going to be five or six minutes longer than normal. Uh, so that's a little closer to lunch for us, too, uh, as we do that. And uh, we want to be able to have enough time to be able to work through uh, the text of Scripture together uh, because we love the Scriptures here. Um, as you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12, last week we started into a new series in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 4, Paul answers questions from the Corinthians that they'd extended to him in a letter regarding spiritual gifts or spiritual people. Last week, we only covered three verses. Uh, But you remember that uh, not only did we cover those three verses, uh, we also explored or attempted to discover what questions in particular the Corinthians must have asked Paul to bring about the letter that we have in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 through 14. And I suggested last week that it appeared that the Corinthians asked Paul questions about who are spiritual people? How can we know who is a spiritual person, Paul? I think that question is answered very early on in the letter in in verse 3 of chapter 12. When Paul says spiritual people are those who say Jesus is Lord. In other words, all believers are spiritual people. But they ask Paul questions about tongues, the spiritual gift of tongues as well. And if you remember last week, I suggested that Paul's answering the tongues question takes a little bit longer. And uh, what I appreciate about Paul's answer in, in, in chapters 12 through 14 is the tact that he displays, or the pastoral sort of way that he answers their question. You remember what happens? In chapter 12, verses 4 through verse 31, all of chapter 12 then is about a theology of spiritual gifts. So instead, you know, instead of Paul just simply saying, you know what, your question about tongues, Corinthian believers, you're all just wrong. Instead of him just coming right out and saying that, he lays a theology of spiritual gifts. Then in chapter 13, he emphasizes the importance or value of love to be demonstrated while the gifts are are functioning in the assembly. And it's not until chapter 14 that he really begins to answer their question about tongue speaking in particular. So today, uh, we will begin our study of a theology of the gifts um, by by looking at uh, four parts. There are four parts to this theology of the gifts found in uh, verses 4 through 31. This morning, we're only going to look at the first three of them in verses 4 through 11. Now, as, as you come to this study of spiritual gifts, you might have your own set of questions that you hope the scriptures or the preacher answers for you. Yeah, you might have questions like this one. What is a spiritual gift? Or How can I know if I have a spiritual gift? Or how can I know what gift is mine? You might ask questions like, are spiritual gifts available to believers today? Or perhaps a related question, are all of the gifts still available today? I think these questions should be bouncing around in your head. Perhaps you have a question like this one. Is it possible 
to have more than one spiritual gift. What I want to do is I want to encourage you to hold on to these questions. I think Paul will answer many of them throughout the course of the next three chapters. Not all of these questions will be answered in any one sermon. But if you're faithful to come week by week and to pay close attention to the preaching and teaching of the scriptures, I'm confident that God will answer most of your questions about spiritual gifts. And so as we get into a a theology of the gifts, uh, we start first with the distribution of them in verses 4 through 7. That's the first topic that Paul gives in this theology of gifts, the distribution of the gifts. Look in your Bible at verse 4. It says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and the variety of service, services, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Here in these first few verses, Paul is concerned to show us that the entire Godhead is involved in the distribution of the spiritual gifts. And from verses 4 through 6 in particular, you can learn a lot about Paul and his view of God, his view of the Godhead. And although the, the doctrine of the Trinity was not established formally, Uh, for several centuries later, or after Paul, was not articulated to then, it's obvious that when Paul looks at the Godhead, he looks at three parallel members, all working together as one in the distribution of spiritual gifts. This is a great passage to defend the Trinity, the interrelationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As we come into this passage, he not only mentions every member of the Godhead, he suggests that every member of the Godhead is involved in the distribution of the gifts. And so he starts, first of all, in verse 4, by saying that the Holy Spirit is involved in the variety of gifts. And the word that Paul uses, gifts, is a word that I would suggest could be translated grace gifts. It comes from the root word, which means grace And so I want to mention a few things about this important word in verse 4, the the grace gifts that come from the Spirit. As a matter of fact, I'll make three observations about this word. Uh, First of all, the word that Paul uses here is a Pauline word. It's not a word found in other places. Uh, This word for grace gifts is used 17 times in the New Testament, and Paul uses it 16 of those times. The Apostle Paul uses it 16 out of 17. The only place it's used outside of Paul's writings is 1 Peter 4.10, where to me it is at least a strong possibility that Simon Peter is dependent upon the teaching of Paul the Apostle and his understanding of the theology of gifts. So the first thing I would say about the word grace gifts is this is a Pauline word. The second thing I would say about it is this is not the word that the Corinthians normally used or used in their letter to Paul. As we read it in our English Bible, sometimes we can get a little confused about this. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, when Paul says, now concerning the what? What does he say there? The 
spiritual gifts, that's how it's translated in most Bibles, he is using a word there that's different than the word he uses down in verse 4. Last week I suggested that the word could be translated now concerning the spirituals. Spiritual gifts or spiritual people. And the emphasis of that word is placed upon the spirit of God and, and the spirituality that he will produce in the life of a believer. But Paul uses a different word and his word takes the focus and puts it on grace. The grace of God. And so Paul wants to turn the Corinthians' attention off of spirituality and demonstrations of spiritual levels and statuses to grace. And I, I think that he does this because it will remind them not to boast in any of the good things they've given, been given. They're gracious things. They come from God. It's not something that we produce. Matter of fact, one theologian described what I've been trying to say in this way. He said, probably the Corinthians used the term spirituals to describe spiritual manifestations such as tongues and prophecy. The Corinthians considered themselves authorities on such matters already. The trouble is that they are treating these manifestations of the spirit as signs of their own spiritual sophistication and power, their own spiritual power. Therefore, when Paul shifts to the term grace gifts in verse 4, this difference is significant. Grace gifts must be interpreted as God's gift of grace, not as a personal achievement or the property of the speaker. So in verse 4 in your Bible, and any time you see the word gift from this point on, I would always prefer to be translated grace gifts. Just to remind us, that's Paul's word. If the Corinthians are all drawn to all this, you know, demonstrations of spirituality, Paul wants them to be drawn to grace. The goodness of God extended to, to different people. And so, I think Paul is doing this to take the focus off of personal achievements or spirituality. It's kind of like what Paul had already done in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. You remember... That passage, you can flip over there for a second. I'll just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, Paul asks three questions of the Corinthians. He asks them, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I think what Paul is doing in using the word for grace, their grace gifts, their gifts that spring forth from grace, is reminding us all, all believers, that any good spiritual gift that we would have, that we use in the church, is, is something that comes from God's grace to us and through us. That leads me to one other observation about the word for grace gifts here, and that is in the 16 occasions of this term in Paul's writing, the term grace gift does not always speak of spiritual gifts as we would understand or use the term today. It's true that in our passage, the word grace gift here is used often of spiritual gifts, five times, I think, in chapter 12. And Paul uses it that way in Romans 12 too. Uh, Romans 12, uh, verse, verse 8, I think, to describe the category of what we would call grace gifts. But this word is a broad word. Where grace gifts can be used of any 
good thing that God gives to believers that springs forth from his kindness to us. Okay, so uh, some of you have uh, memorized Romans 6.23. That's a great Awana verse right there, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the graced gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that passage and other passages like it, sometimes Paul will use this word for gifts, grace gifts, to describe the things that come forth from his grace, like eternal life or salvation. There are times when he'll describe the callings that God places on people's lives as a grace gift. Like when he talks about the election of Israel in Romans, he calls it a grace gift from God. Or in 1 Corinthians 7, when he talks about the fact that some people are especially called to live a life of singleness and that God gives them the ability to withhold certain drives and passions, he calls that a grace gift from God. Okay, so the word that Paul is using in the text is a word that's fairly flexible. This term grace gift uh, can even in one text be used of unbelievers who experience something that comes out of God's universal common grace that he gives to people. And so although we tend to think of this word as a more technical term that only applies to spiritual gifts, grace gifts can refer to any manifestation that comes forth from the the grace of God. You say, well, why did we go through all that? I think one of the reasons is this implies at least that no set of gifts, no list of gifts in your Bible is comprehensive. You can put even all of the gifts together. How, you know, how many are there? 28, I think, if you put all the lists together, spiritual gifts. There, there's, I, I see the, the, the list of grace gifts in the Bible as only representative of the many different ways that God extends and gives good gifts especially to believers in the New Testament. And so we see here at the beginning in verse 4 that the Spirit is involved in the distribution of gifts. He's bestowing grace gifts upon the assembly. But next we see that Paul, what Paul says about our Lord. Look down in verses 4 and 5 again. He says that the one Lord Jesus is involved in the variety of service. With this phrase, Paul pictures Jesus, I think. When he says Lord, I I see that as Jesus. He pictures Jesus as involved in the gifts in the ways that they will be utilized or the opportunities that you will have to use your grace gifts in an assembly. And, And this makes a lot of sense because Jesus himself came to serve. And throughout his life, he gives us many good examples of how we can use our gifts to serve other people in the assembly. And this passage says he not only gives us an example, but he empowers our gifts and uh, and helps us to use our gifts in diverse service opportunities in the church. So we've got a picnic going on today. I'm sure that that God is helping some of our members be involved in what we're doing today. And one of the, one of the service opportunities that people are involved in today is, is 
uh, involved in hospitality, okay, and cooking and preparing food for the assembly, okay. God, through the Holy Spirit, gives these grace gifts. Jesus gives us opportunities for service. And then finally, Paul explains that the one God, God the Father, empowers the gifts and is involved in the variety of activities related to the gifts. The word activities here speaks of the results or the effects that God the Father produces through individual believers using their grace gifts in the assembly and a multitude of different service opportunities. Couldn't help but think of the text earlier in 1 Corinthians. Again, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, if you remember, Paul describes himself in Apollos. He says, I planted, Apollos watered. Okay, so you got two men using their gifts in the assembly, but, what's the next phrase? But God gives the increase. Okay, and with this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's emphasis is God the Father will produce the results from our faithful uh, uh, using of our grace gifts in the assembly. And so God produces the results. In 1 Corinthians 12, through 4, uh, 12, 4 through 6, Paul emphasizes that gifts are distributed to each believer by the Godhead. And this source is unified. Let's skip then down to verse 7. Verse 7. In verse 7, I think that Paul is summarizing verses 4 through 6. Uh, but he's doing a little bit more than that. Look at verse 7. He says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I see this as a summary of what he said before. The God has, is involved, and now he's attributing it to the Spirit. The Spirit's involved. Not only is verse 7 a summary of verses 4 through 6, I believe verse 7 is also a header for the rest of the text that will follow in chapter 7. So uh, if you look up on the PowerPoint in front of you, and uh, I'm going to put verse 7 up there again, I think you'll see the point I want to make. In verse 7, there are three parts to the verse. He says, to each is given at the beginning part of that passage. I think there, Paul is emphasizing the extent of the gifts and in verses 8 through 10, they immediately follow. He's going to talk more about how gifts have been given to every believer. After that, the second part of the phrase is the manifestation of the Spirit in verse 7. And Paul will return to that concept in verse 11 when he talks about the source of the gifts being the Spirit of God. And then at the very end of verse 7, Paul talks about the purpose for the spiritual gifts for the common good... It's my belief that that's what the rest of the chapter will be about. So in Paul's theology of gifts, he's giving here a header in verse 7 that will help you understand the rest of the passage uh, that follows. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, remind you of verse 7 as we, as we go throughout these other sections in the book. So let's go now to the extent of the gifts in verses 8 through 10. And the emphasis here will be upon the fact that every believer has been given by God a spiritual gift. Look in verse 8. It says, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between the Spirit's to another, various kinds of tongues. 
to another the interpretation of tongues. All right, this is kind of an interesting passage, right? In this passage, Paul lists out nine different spiritual gifts, and some of them are quite juicy. Okay, trying to figure out exactly what are these spiritual gifts that uh, Paul's discussing here. If you, if, as, as we read through there, you may have noted a few things about the list. I, I want to kind of look at two things about the list of nine before we look at them uh, closely together. Okay. The first thing I would emphasize about this list of nine is how they are arranged. You may have noticed in your English Bible that the words to another are repeated all throughout here. Do you see that? Okay, the first one is to one, and then it's to another, and then to another, to another, to another. Nine times you'll see those words. Most English readers can pick that up. He's marking out different gifts, right? Okay, but one of the things you might not realize is that Paul uses two different words to say to another. Normally, it's one particular Greek word. They both mean to another, but I think that Paul is marking out different categories or groups of words. So the second word that Paul used, he only uses it at the beginning of verse 9. Look at the beginning of verse 9. To another faith. That word another is a different word. The same thing is true in the middle of verse 10. Paul uses the same word again when he says, to another various kinds of tongues. Okay. So in my opinion, what Paul's doing is he is grouping these nine gifts in, into three groups. The first gift or first group is the gift of wisdom and the gift of knowledge, or the word of knowledge. The second group starts with faith, because he uses that different word. And then the next five gifts follow to another faith, and then uh, working of miracles, healings, prophecy, and the dis- distinguishing of spirits. It's all one group. That's the second group. And then the third group, uh, and he uses that different word again to start the third group, is tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Okay? So that's kind of a cool thing, right? There are three groups here in Paul's mind. That's his intention. He's got these three different ways of looking at the groups. There are three categories of groups here. Now, one of the other questions we ask about it is, why would Paul do that? I mean, why does he see these groups as groups of three, or why does he place them in this way? And it's my opinion that Paul does this because the problematic gifts in Corinth are the first and the last group. The first and the last group. And so what Paul's doing is he's doing something like grabbing their attention with the first group. The gifts of the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. We already saw in 1 Corinthians that the Corinthians were very concerned with wisdom and knowledge. They boasted in their wisdom and knowledge as spiritual people in the assembly. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17, if you remember this, back there he says uh, that when he came, he did not come to baptize, but he he came to to preach the gospel and not with, listen to what he says, words of wisdom or word of wisdom, but in, later on verse 19, but the, he came to preach the word of the cross. That, that first group of two, the, the, the spiritual gift of a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, I'm suggesting to you that the Corinthians were making too much out of it. So Paul leads with that. 
And then at the end, the last two, tongues and interpretation of tongues, he gets there because that's the particular question they're asking. I think it's to give them hope that he's going to answer their questions about tongues. But then in between it, there are five gifts that are listed there. And I think what Paul's doing with that list is he's expanding the horizons of the Corinthian believers, their perspective. They're all about wisdom and knowledge, tongues and interpretation of tongues. And Paul gives them five other gifts that are on par with their gifts. Okay, so he's broadening their focus or expanding their perspective. So let's look at the gifts. The first gift he talks about, first two gifts I would call intellectual gifts, the gifts of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom, uh, I think, can be defined in this way. Wisdom is God-given insight into the purpose and workings of God. If you look over just one chapter in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2, I think Paul helps us understand a little bit more what the gift of wisdom is. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, and, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, when he says understand all mysteries, I think that's kind of synonymous for the spiritual gift of wisdom. The ability to understand the mysteries of God. Okay, so Paul talks about wisdom in this passage. He talks about the gift of the word of knowledge as well. Knowledge means grasping the full reality of something. In some places, this word for knowledge is translated understanding. And uh, one of the things that I, I feel is important to understand these spiritual gifts of wisdom and knowledge is to make a distinction uh, that is important. And the distinction is this. God, as the creator, gives wisdom, insight, and knowledge in certain degrees, to every person, all human beings, okay? We're made in the image of God. God gives us all wisdom and knowledge, okay? That's kind of the normal use of wisdom and knowledge. But what Paul is doing in this text is he's talking about something a little bit different. He's talking about the word of wisdom and the utterance or the word of knowledge. He's describing now a special miraculous gift that was given only to particular believers in the first century. Okay, a spiritual gift of wisdom or knowledge. In other words, the gifts that Paul references here go beyond normal wisdom and knowledge to a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. Well, and, and while we don't have time to actually defend it in full detail today, I want to suggest that these two spiritual gifts, the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge, are no longer available to the church today. If you look across your Bible again in, in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8, I think Paul begins to make this case. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8 in your Bible. It says, love never ends, but notice what he says next. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. What's the third list? Third gift. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Okay, I can't get into all the specifics of what I believe about that passage. Okay, uh, we'll do it with it later. Come back later, right? It'll be fun. Look through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But in, uh, in verse 8, I think he's saying there's, there's coming a time when the spiritual gift of knowledge will pass away. I think that that's 
already happened. So come back in a few weeks. I'll try to make that case to you. In the meanwhile, I don't think it'd be a good idea for any of our believers to walk around and say, I've got a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom from the Lord for you. Because I think you can make the case that that those spiritual gifts have ceased. That does not mean that God won't give us wisdom and knowledge. Like, to help us in counseling situations with people, to apply truth of Scripture to their lives. But what we're doing in those situations is we're taking revelation that's already been given to us in the Word of God and we're applying it to their lives. What the spiritual gifts of wisdom and knowledge involved was new revelation from God to people to help them in their Christian life and experience. And so these two grace gifts involve speaking and insightful and a significant utterance into the life of another person, and I would suggest that those gifts have ceased. Come back later, and we'll talk more about them. If you look at the next set of gifts in verses 9 through 10, I think we can do this pretty quickly. We come to certain miraculous and prophetic gifts. Paul first mentions the gift of faith. And I want to just point out a few things about uh, this gift of faith. First, This gift of faith from God, or from Paul, does not speak of conversion faith, in my opinion. But of an unusual demonstration of God's grace to particular believers. In other words, what I think Paul is describing here is a miraculous type of deep, rich, or robust faith... One commentator described it as uh, a mysterious surge of confidence in God that would be given to certain believers to enable them in the first century to perform amazing things on behalf of God. As a matter of fact, uh, and I'm just going to summarize a few of these things because we're running out of time. The gifts that follow... I think, are dependent upon this miraculous spiritual gift of faith. Okay? So right after that, you see uh, miracle working and healing. I think faith is at the head of this group of five because they're all dependent upon faith. And that the faith that Paul has in mind is not just like conversion faith, but he's thinking of a more miraculous type of faith that would enable certain believers in the first century to perform miracles and to do healings. And so, um, you remember what Christ, how Christ answered the disciples about their need of faith? Uh, They were perplexed as to why they could not cast out a certain demon. And in Matthew chapter 17, this is what Jesus said to them. He said, or this is what the text says. The text says, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you would have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. I think Paul has something like that miraculous faith in mind when he talks about the spiritual gift of faith. One of the reasons I think that is if you look over in your Bible at 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 2, He's describing the sort of gift of faith that could could accomplish nothing without love. 
He says, and even if you have faith so as to move mountains and don't have love, accomplish nothing. So when Paul talks about the spiritual gift of faith, I believe that what he's doing here is he's, he's laying out this first century spiritual gift of faith that would enable certain particular believers to perform miracles and do healings. Unfortunately, we won't have time to get the whole way through the list, but I do want to at least briefly talk about working miracles and doing healings. And next week, you could come back and uh, we'll finish the list. These next two gifts in the list, healings and miracle workings, uh, are important to understand and consider as well. While the nature of these spiritual gifts is quite straightforward, I don't have to like tell you what healings mean or working miracles One of the most perplexing things today to many people today is why does it not appear that believers are performing these sort of amazing acts in the world today? I mean, um, I don't know about you, but I don't hear of many believers attesting to the fact that they're working miracles or they're performing faith healings without the the work of medicine or doctors or something. And so, two possible answers appear, in my opinion, to the lack of miracle workers and healers in the world today. Some would suggest an answer that I don't like. And they would say, the reason we don't have miracle workers and healers as much today is we don't have faith. We don't have the great faith. Okay? But rooted in that answer is the belief of something that I tried to contradict last week. And that is that that sort of teaching actually teaches that there are two different levels of spiritual people. Like some people of the spirit and then they're like other people who are like really of the spirit. Whereas what Paul says in verse 3 is anyone who claims Jesus is Lord makes that profession, that confession of faith is a spiritual person. And so there's a better answer to the question, why are there not many, why are there no Miracle workers today, why are there no healings going on today? I think a better answer is for the absence of these gifts can be found in the very nature of these gifts revealed in the New Testament. In several places in your New Testament scriptures and throughout the, the, the history of the early church, healing and miracles were grace gifts given to the apostles, to the Lord or to some of the early followers of Christ to confirm the authenticity of the message of Jesus. In other words, what I want to suggest is some of the gifts that we'll be looking at throughout our study are confirmatory gifts. They confirm the truth of what Jesus said. As a matter of fact, why don't you turn your Bibles as we close to Hebrews chapter 2. And I'll just show you that these gifts functioned as a means of confirming the message of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2. I'll just take a few, a brief moment here to look at verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, 
and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. If you read and understood Hebrews 1, you would know that the author of Hebrews is there talking about the law of Moses. That the law of Moses was delivered by angels to Moses. And that under the law of Moses, if you broke one of the commandments, you would be judged. You would be held accountable. On the basis of that, just following that, look at verse 3. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Our salvation was declared at first by the Lord. Who's the Lord? It was declared at first by Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to the sovereign will of the Spirit. I think what the author of Hebrews is telling us, he's telling us we should be very careful to neglect the great salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. Because this salvation didn't come from Moses. This message didn't come from Moses. This message came from Jesus. And this message was confirmed in its own way. That message was delivered by angels. This one by Jesus. And it was confirmed by signs and wonders and miracles performed and gifts distributed by the Holy Spirit to individual believers, individual people. I think what this passage, what others like in the book of Acts can demonstrate for us is there are certain gifts that were in the church that were meant to confirm the message or the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they were miraculous things given by God for a time to prove that Jesus was who he said he was, the Savior of the world. And so as we go through some of these gifts, from time to time I will suggest that uh, these gifts are for a time. Uh, they were given to affirm Jesus and that there's no permanently gifted, for instance, returning to these two gifts, miracle workers in the world today. That there are no permanently gifted faith healers who just have the ability through the Spirit to perform a miraculous healing over and over and over again. Don't get me wrong, as we close, I do believe that God can still heal. He does still heal. And that God still works miracles. I believe perhaps is, uh, helps us understand why are there, there are no faith healers and miracle workers is that those gifts were given for a time. God can still do it, but perhaps he won't use any one individual over and over again to do these things. Well, there's so much more to be said about spiritual gifts, but we'll have to stop there. The food is done, and I trust that as we come uh, next, back next week, we'll talk about prophecy and tongues and get into that discussion as well. Let's close in a word of prayer before we sing. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being here today. Thank you for your word. Lord, there's much to take in about these gifts. Uh, I'm thankful, Lord, for what we have seen even this morning, that the Godhead is involved in the distribution of the grace gifts and that these gifts go to every believer. Uh, Father, as we attempt to serve you this week, I pray that you'd give us wisdom and knowledge to know how to live our lives appropriately before you. And I pray that you would use us to impact others for your name. In Jesus' name, amen.